Salty Sister. That's the name of the song that you're listening to right now. It is from the new album Roller Fink from the band The Surfragettes. Just came out earlier this month from High Tide Recordings. Of course, we've been given permission to promote High Tide Recordings here on the show, so Salty Sister it is. Go check them out when you're done listening to episode 570 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio, and I am your writer, host, and producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the podcast. I've got a good one this week, one that kind of came together at the last minute, which I know I've been doing a lot of lately, but fortunately, the monster gods have been smiling down upon us by making things line up just right so that we can talk about a movie like The Blood Beast Terror this week on the podcast, and this week's guest author David Annandale. We haven't had David on the show in a little while, but he has been on the show in the past. And in case you've forgotten, the man is an author. He writes some incredibly cool stuff. Dr. Doom novels, Warhammer Horror, Black Library, just some really neat stuff. And David took some time out of his busy schedule to join me here on Monster Kid Radio to talk about a movie that he really, really loves. And really, that's the best kind of guest to have on Monster Kid Radio. Somebody who loves a movie, warts and all, if there are warts, and you'll have to listen to the episode to find out if there are, but warts and all, you love the movie, you're going to have a passion and enthusiasm that is going to rub off on me. Does that happen in this week's episode? Spoiler alert, yes. But also, this is just a really good time. David is a great guy to chat with. I had an amazing time with him. So that's coming up this week. And of course, it would not be an episode of Monster Kid Radio if we didn't have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland or Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. So we've got that all coming up in this episode. Also in this episode, we have some listener feedback. I received an email and uh, we're going to get to that right about now. Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, Mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Terror stalks the countryside and holds the community in a grip of fear. Well, I've never seen anything like this before, never. 
Neither have I, Superintendent. Human, animal, or animal? Joyce, Joyce, he's gone, he's gone! What is the sinister secret of the beast in the cellar? Did they get anyone? Catch anyone? No, but someone saw a thing getting away. Thing? It was a girl saw it. She thought it was an animal of some kind, but she couldn't really tell. Darkness cloaked the mystery and the shattering nightmare of the beast in the cellar. It's all right, Joyce. I've done it. I've done it. I've, I've buried him. And who have you been burying in the middle of the night? of two great ladies, Beryl Reed and Flora Robson. I've got to tell them now, Joyce. You do understand, don't you? I've, I've got to. If you think it's best, Ellie. Dare you go into the cellar and uncover its gruesome secret? It's time. It's time? Yes, it's time. It's, it's time, time for Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio, Radio Mail Call. This email comes from Kevin Slick, former guest of the show. He was just on the show not too long ago. We talked about The Innocence, and he wrote in and said, Hi, Derek. Enjoyed the review of The People. I had read the novel Pilgrimage before seeing the film. I think I saw the film for the first time on video and was pretty disappointed based on how much I enjoyed the book. Apparently, Pilgrimage is the novel form of several of her short stories about the people. What I remember disliking was that the film seemed brighter and lighter than the book. Also in the novel, as I recall, there's a little more mystery about what's going on. The novel seemed deeper and richer. Hope all is well. I read similar comments about the people and the stories or collection of stories it was based on. From other people on Facebook as well, once the episode went live, some people made some comments about it, and it really got me interested in tracking down the original stories. I know I mentioned that with Steve Turek last week when we talked about the people, but at this point, oh, I really, really want to read this stuff now because it sounds like it would be a, a fun read, if nothing else. I enjoyed the people for what it was. I'm looking forward to expanding my people experience with the short stories or the novel or whatever you want to call the collection of pieces that led to uh, the film. So thank you for writing in, Kevin. I appreciate it very much. And you know, it's always a good time when I have you on the show as well, sir. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. This is Jack Curtis, director of the film The Flesh Eaters. If you can't stand the sight of flesh being stripped from a human body, please leave the room. There will be a 10-second countdown. 10, 9, 8, 
seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. There's something inside me. It's eating its way out. These things want flesh, any kind of flesh. And once they sense it, they lead their way to anything that comes between them and their meat. No one can escape the flesh eaters. of a man are laid to rest. Who is it this time, Peter? It's Mr. Spaulding. They found him this morning. Just like the others. Just like the others, he died in the night. Get away! Suddenly, violently, horribly. This is an evil place. Corrupt and evil. Evil, as venomous as a snake, turns the quiet of this village into a writhing hell on earth. Where every man fears for his safety and his sanity. Where everyone is suspect. What do you mean they died by some sort of magic? Some witchcraft? For the first time in my life, I'm frightened. Everyone is frightened. The doctor who'd lived his life in the East. This man who could be the next victim. This woman and this girl are frightened, hypnotized by the crawling, creeping spell of the reptile. Stop! Pack your things, we're leaving. No, Dr. Franklin. You are not leaving. I could kill you. Possibly. But you could never be free then, could you? And what would happen to little Anna then? Trapped like animals in a cage and getting closer and closer, suffocating them with terror. The reptile. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Ultra 7 survives King Joe's aggressive initial attack, but the real struggle is just starting. In the show's 15th episode, The Ultra Guard Goes West, Part 2. The Titans battle to a draw. Ultra 7 saves the base, King Joe disassembles and flies away to safety, and Dan cautions the Ultra Guard that the Pedan aliens will not be easily deterred in their bid to invade the Earth. Dr. Suchida insists that the actual Dorothy Anderson must be located if the Terrestrial Defense Force hopes to save the planet, as her knowledge of Pedan technology is unsurpassed. Dan spots her from the Kobe Tower observation deck, but he soon learns it's her Pedon body double, and the two aliens breach a back-channel deal. If Earth stops developing weapons to use against Pedon, Pedon will stop the imminent invasion. 
and will return Dorothy as a sign of good faith. When American Melvin Webb appears at TDF base with Dorothy, it seems as if the crisis has been averted. But the fact that her mind has apparently been wiped coincides with the news that a Pedon invasion force is incoming as a recombined King Joe begins lighting up the industrial port. Dan has a score to settle with King Joe, but he knows he cannot defeat the robot alone, even as the mighty Ultra 7. The Ultra Guard Goes West Part 2 is a visually dazzling successor to Part 1, offering plenty of combat and pyrotechnics on meticulously crafted sets. But the heart of the episode is a scene in which the Paydon Dorothy tries to figure out Dan's allegiance to the people of Earth. At this point, it's a question that we viewers want to know the answer to as well. Why does Dan Moraboshi slash Ultra 7 care as much as he does. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. for 200 years that creeps its way back to terrorize the living. The terrifying horror of a dreaded man called Dr. Terror who, with his deck of mystic cards, could foretell destiny. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Evil has visited the Earth in many forms. Now it returns as the car. There was no driver in the car. The car possessed. the cemetery. The ground was hallowed. Who knows what it wants? They all know nothing can stop the car. This is Wade! We can't let him through no matter what! I 
it's around here somewhere. I... Wait, I'm scared. No, I promise you I won't go out. Tell me what to do, baby. I... I... What evil force drives the car? Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's film was not featured in FM, but I did find a couple of mentions. In FM 117, from July of 1975, there was the first part of a comprehensive look at today's star, Peter Cushing. In an interesting section, where the author answers two questions about the great actor, the title of today's movie is presented. But it is not the Blood Beast Terror. Let's listen and find out if we can recognize the alternate title. What sort of man is Peter Cushing? Peter has had an interest in art all his life. In 1958, an exhibition of his paintings was held in London. He is skilled with his hands, so graceful and strong on the screen, having modeled toy trains and airplanes, built model theaters with miniature actor dolls and handmade furniture. He has also been an expert on tropical fish and birds. But all these hobbies are in the past now, for to Peter Cushing his work is his life, more than ever since Helen Cushing's death. In addition to his movie and television appearances, he has recorded for the blind and is active in the fight against muscular dystrophy. He is deeply religious, and his belief has sustained him in his sorrow over the loss of his wife. As mentioned earlier, Peter Cushing impresses everyone who meets him with his kindness, warmth and thoughtfulness. In short, as Robert Quarry and Christopher Lee have characterized him, he is truly Saint Peter. What kind of actor is Peter Cushing? He is obviously capable of playing many kinds of roles, from the elderly vague old man in Tales from the Crypt, a part he chose over the one offered him, to the fascistic leader in Scream and Scream Again. From the sardonic scientist in Island of Terror, to the foppish Azric in Hamlet. From the tormented doctor in Corruption, to the black-hearted sheriff of Nottingham in Sword of Sherwood Forest. From the Dr. Watson-like Major Holly in She. To Sherlock Holmes himself in Hound of the Baskervilles, and his TV series. But like all stars, Peter Cushing is often cast in similar parts, because everything about him, his small, wiry frame, his narrow face, his intensity, seem to make him so well suited for these parts. Other fine actors played the same sort of person many times. Humphrey Bogart was frequently the gangster or the detective, James Cagney many times the bright thug, Betty Davis the hardened woman, Boris Karloff the obsessed scientist, and so forth. It is no shame for an actor to be typecast, in fact, it generally means steady employment. Cushing's versatility is without question, so his playing similar parts is only proof of his reliability. These somewhat similar personalities which Peter Cushing so often embodies, boil down to a scientist type. Calculating, aristocratic, humorous, brisk, shrewd, driven, energetic, enthusiastic and, above all, intelligent. This type can be a villain, as his Baron Frankenstein frequently is, or a hero, as his various Dr. Van Helsings always are. 
His scientist type parts have included the characters just mentioned and the roles in such other films as The Mummy, The Skull. The Vampire Beast Craves Blood. Horror Express, Island of Terror, and now The Screaming Starts, The Creeping Flesh, and of course, the epitome of this type of person, Sherlock Holmes. We see this different title again in the filmography in Part 2, found in Issue 118. There we learn that this film came between 1967's Torture Garden and the only other film he appeared in during 1968, Corruption. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. It was on a dark street in a respectable suburban neighborhood that the thing first made its presence known. A murdering creature of Satan that hacked away parts of the body to build a mother with the stolen organs. See Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing, three masters of the macabre, in Scream and Scream Again in color. Rated M. Welcome to the crypt. You are invited on a guided tour of a world of darkness where nightmares become reality. Death lives. Death lives in Tales from the Crypt. The Vault of Horror is about to open. You will learn its terrifying secrets if you dare. Tales from the Crypt from Cinerama Releasing. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Some material may be unsuitable for pre-teenagers. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Listeners, man, this week's movie, not something that I expected. I'd seen it before, but it had been years ago. So when the monster reveal happens, I'm like, what? What? Oh, yeah. And I can't wait to talk about that monster reveal with the person who recommended this movie, David Annandale. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Great to be here. Uh, were you surprised that I jumped on this so quickly when you recommended the movie? Well, I was, pleasantly so. Uh, but because, uh, I mean, I, I, I sometimes feel like I'm in a, you know, a, a lonely and brave minority in my deep love for this film. 
So when I said, hey, do you want to do this one? And then, you know, like almost sooner than I had sent it, you said yes, then, uh, well, yes, beyond delighted. Had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that I didn't know what I was going to do this week. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, in all seriousness, uh, this movie does not get a lot of love. Uh, the Blood Beast no, Terror is known by a number of other titles as well. Uh, it doesn't get a lot of love, and I can understand why. However, I still had a good time with it. I was It was great to revisit it. Uh, I hadn't watched it in forever. I've got it on Blu-ray, for crying out loud, but I just haven't watched it in forever, so it was great to kind of revisit it. I never need an excuse to watch it again. Uh, I, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I may have seen... Well, I mean, I, I, I can say almost certainly by now I've probably seen this movie more often than Star Wars. Uh, it's... Wow. <laughs> it's definitely of the, the, the Tygon films. If you asked me what is my favorite Tygon film, I, I would probably uh, bump for The Creeping Flesh. But it's it's a close run, I think, between this and uh, between The Creeping Flesh and the Blood, the Blood Beast Terror. And which have I seen the most often? I'm not 100% sure. Uh, it's certainly, I've seen this one two or three times just in the last year. So, uh, wow. Yeah. It's a, it's a heavy rotation one for me. Wow. That's fascinating. I, I, I like it. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> yeah. I like it that much. I mean, it's good. It's Peter Cushing and, and anything with Peter Cushing, I'm going to watch more than once and try to own in my collection. Uh, but wow, that's fascinating, man. Uh, so you threw out a name and for listeners who don't know Tygon. So when you think about British horror studios, Obviously, Hammer comes to mind, and just, you know, Hammer was the big dog. But there were other studios as well. If you had to kind of rank them, I suppose you'd say Hammer. Beneath them, you'd have Amicus, and they did a lot of the portmanteau films, you know, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, things along those lines. And then beneath them, you'd have companies like Tygon, who did movies like this, who did The Creeping Flesh. They did Witchfinder General, too, didn't they? They did, yeah. And uh, there's a kind of sort of interlocked business between the Blood Beast Terror and uh, Witchfinder General, because Witchfinder General was in the planning stages when okay. uh, Blood Beast Terror was being made, and and Witchfinder General was becoming you know the the expensive movie, and so a Blood Beast Terror, you know, they're just the money wasn't there uh, for it, and so I kind of think of like there, there's two films that I I sort of always think of in the same breath as the Blood Beast Terror, Witchfinder General because of the the the, the timing and uh, being from the same company, and the Reptile, which will I imagine we'll get oh. to, of course, All right? Yeah. Oh, there is, and I don't think I got that the first time I saw this, and maybe it was because I wasn't overly familiar with the Reptile at the time. Uh, and I do like the reptile a lot, and I'm sure I'm going to play the trailer in this episode somewhere just because of the thematic connections. But uh, yeah, a lot of reptile in here. And then I also, and I need to talk to him about this, got a strong vibe from this film in reference to uh, the kind of monsters that Mitch Gonzalez makes for Christopher R. Mim. Mm. Uh, the, the big monster in this reminded me a lot of say like the monster and where Skeeto Nazi hunter, that, that kind of, you know, the construction and the shapes involved. And I thought it was really neat to see that. And I, I do need to ask him now, next time I talk to Mitch Gonzalez, if this was an influence on anything that he does, um, because it, it is a weird monster. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it, 
Granted that a lot of the people involved with the film, including Cushing, didn't think it was any good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the monster, it's definitely one of those, did this ever seem like a good idea at any time? The elevator pitch was Weremoth, and uh, <laughs> uh, and they went, yeah, let's do it. Um, you know, I... <laughs> like I said, I... I bow to no one in my love for this film but i also completely understand all the brickbats it has ever received it's kind of a mess too in, in its construction there's you know the, the the professor giving lessons in his home and the class decides to put on a play what what <laughs> why, why, not? Why, why not i guess but and then oh wear moth <laughs> which you know what I, i'm gonna give it credit i thought it looked all right I know it gets a lot of grief, but I thought it looked okay. Well, and I think there's I think there's a lot of stuff that does work in this film and that makes it really interesting. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is the the way that it feels like it's in dialogue with the reptile. Right? It's now they, mm -hmm. they, they say it's just coincidence. Okay, whatever, but still the so the two films have very similar premises, right? With the uh, reclusive scientist and the daughter who's actually the monster and the uh, the the killings that are going on and yada yada. So it it they're, they're very and and both of them also have this kind of uh, the sins of colonialism being visited upon the uh, the, the colonial empire in uh, subtext, right? Mm -hmm. So so they have that. But the blood beast terror also kind of takes the reptile's premise and turns it upside down, because for one, when I say like when I say weremoth, that's not entirely right, right? Because it's not a woman who turns into a moth. It's a moth who turns into a woman. Yeah. And that's a pretty significant difference. And that follows through because in the, the reversal that we get in the reptile. Because there in the reptile, so the, 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 the daughter monster is very much the victim of the tyrannical father and under his thumb and desperately seeking to escape in some ways. But... In the Blood Beast Terror, Professor Malinger may think he's the one in control. May he may think he's Doctor Franklin from the Reptile, but as we see by the end, he's he's not really the one in control. And it's uh, the 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 daughter monster here is not seeking to escape. She's seeking well control, power, domination. So there's a lot of reversals going on here, which I find really interesting. And even that play. Right. Like that's a long, <laughs> it's like, why are we watching the whole play? Right. I think the question can fairly be asked, but to which I would also answer, well, it's clearly, at least to me, we're, we're looking at the Hamlet play within a play thing going on, mm -hmm. but with some reversals there too, since there it's not the king's conscience being pricked by what he's watching. Instead, the professor goes, hey, that's a good idea. The, the galvanism, I need to look into that. And, <laughs> but it, it's also, it, it's, it's feeling like it's just taking the mickey out of the whole hammer tradition. Mm -hmm. And given when this film was coming out, right? So made 67, released 68. This is after the, the glory days of, of hammer, right? There's still some wonderful, wonderful movies to come. Some really important ones, but the golden age has, has passed, particularly of this particular kind of Gothic. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, this Frankenstein like play feels like they're just having fun, poking fun at the whole hammer premise, even as this film is one of those 
but not taking itself entirely seriously either, right? Right down to that last line of uh, of Cushing's, right? No one would believe this anywhere. <laughs> like I said, I've seen this once many years ago. Even when I b- picked it up on Blu-ray, I didn't. I think it was a gift. I didn't watch it. I just put it out into the collection. It's like, cool, Peter Cushing. I got another one here. So I haven't watched it in forever. So a lot of this was almost fresh eyes for me. Mm-hmm. So when the play started, I mean, it took me a little while to catch up. I was like, oh yeah, they did do that. I was captivated by that. And I wanted <laughs> to know more about, oh, look at that backdrop. And when they throw the switch, they've got the little dial that actually moves and all this yeah. other stuff's going That's on. That's a pretty good, pretty good little props they've got for themselves there that they whipped up for the show. You know, not bad for a bunch of entomologists, <laughs> <laughs> you know, decided to put on a play in their professor's house. <laughs> With his, with his daughter in revealing clothes, so sure, why not? Right. Well, I guess that's one way to save on the budget. We don't need a university set. We just have a home somewhere. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's a were-moth. Uh, I think David pretty much, in what he was describing, reveals what the movie's about. It's, it's a, a moth monster that needs blood, and you'll see that overly emphasized in a lot of the uh, advertising for this film, the movie posters, even some of the alternate titles uh, really emphasizes the need for blood. The vampire beast craves blood, uh, for example, is one of the alternate titles. And I think I've actually seen that poster, that one sheet at the joy cinema. Uh, He's got that up Mm. on the wall. I don't know if it's an original or not, but I love it because the artwork is just, (laughs) it's lurid and a little exploitive. And I love that. I love that so much. Well, and it's, I think that's, that's fitting because it is, you know, it's a pretty lurid film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, for the no. kind of movie it is and Peter Cushing, I, I can't get enough of him. I, yeah. you know, of course, Cush, I'm team cook Peter. I've, I've made that very clear over the years here on the show and just in real life to anybody who cares to listen. Uh, I love Peter Cushing films. Anything that he does, I'm going to watch and find something to like. I'm sure. And in this, even though he himself was like, yeah, it's probably the worst movie I've ever made, I feel like he's doing a great job yeah. and and kind of approaching the role in a way that I don't normally see. I, I feel like Cushing a lot of times is a man in control. Frankenstein, Tarkin, you know, yeah. uh, Van Helsing. Uh, you know, he, he's a man in control of things. And in this, he's kind of tapping into that Sherlock Holmes a little bit where he's mm-hmm. not necessarily in control, trying to figure things out. But even then he's differentiating the performance enough so that it's not just Holmes in a different set of clothes. You know, even the way he kind of sets his mouth and his jaw while he's looking and learning things is a little different. And that I found captivating. And I really love some of his little bits of business, particularly that one uh, early on when Sergeant Allen uh, brings his tea and slops it, right? Yes, yes. Can't you not slop it into the the saucer? And then we we just see him, you know, scrape the, try to get the the tea off his cup, right? And just just fussing with it uh, a little bit. And it's just this wonderful, so natural, convincing moment. You completely buy the character, at least I do, uh, at that moment, right? He's looking like a man who's trying to concentrate on this bit of business, but it's still going to irritate him that his tea is sloppy in his in in the saucer. 
Yes. And and it's just it's screwing with his ability to focus uh on on what's going on. Finally just you know, gives up here, you know, keep this warm somewhere, he'll go off and deal with the uh uh with, with, with the body. But just that very human such naturally done bit of business with the teacup. I, mm-hmm. I that's one of my favorite moments in the film. It's great. Uh you know, when you watch Cushing, once you know to look for it you gotta watch for the little bits of business you gotta look for him to pick up a prop that he probably wasn't written to pick up but you know he's gonna mm-hmm. do it anyway because he's props cushing so you're always watching for the little things that he's doing that doesn't involve dialogue and i love that whole thing the, the attitude with the tea the way he kind of hands the saucer almost with disdain to the guy like warm this up so i'm just there, there's an attitude and approach to this role that Again, he could have easily slipped into like a Holmes kind of performance, and it's not. It's something totally different, but he still maintains enough or retains enough of those Cushing-isms that you can't help but love it. Yeah. Yeah. And whatever he thought about the film, he committed. Right? Yeah. He, he, he had delivered the, the full performance. It doesn't... There's nothing about his performance that feels phoned in. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, I will have words with anybody who says otherwise. <laughs> I'll seek that moth after you. Uh, and even okay, so the victims of the uh, the were moth or the monster moth. I was surprised again when the one guy shows up and starts making romantic gestures towards the daughter. Kind of expected him to slip into that secondary hero role, right? No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. He's uh, he's food. Yeah, I mean, and you know. Let's be honest. You're not sorry when he is, because he's a no, yeah, you know, smug little so and so. But yeah, he does. But he he does feel like you know. I mean, he's the guy we see in the prologue. He kind mm-hmm. of shows up. He's he's got all the earmarks of yeah, that that hero. Uh, the you know the 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 romantic lead while Cushing takes care of everything else. Right. Uh, you know the you know, Van Helsing second banana, but. Yeah, but then he's gone, right? And there's just we we don't get that. We you know we 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 sort of seem to get maybe an, a, another one who's kind of becoming friends with or like I hesitate to use the word couple with Cushing's daughter because the the way they're behaving is like they're ten, and <laughs> you know right. And he's certainly no hero. He's just another almost victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this this was a fun, I'm, I'm going to say it, it's a fun little movie, and I, I don't know what the status is of it. I, I don't know if it's public domain or not. There have been some different views on that, but mm-hmm. if it's something that I can show, I want to show it in the stream someday, because I think people would dig it. There, there's a lot to enjoy here. Yeah. And I'm going to dig out the Blu-ray, and I'm going to watch it, because I want to like spend a little bit more time in that world, and... and you know, learn more about the cast, and I know there's a commentary track on there that I've never listened to, so I need to check that out. And it is, it, it is a world. I think that's a good way of putting it. I think that maybe you may put your finger on one of the things that I I love about the film. Why I keep going back to it. I just like being there in the this this the small town first. Uh, well, the the two little communities that the film takes place in, and and there too, I think it's interesting that it it keeps the pace up, right? It does the same kind of thing that uh, both, you see both Jaws and the Omen do in that halfway through the film, they change things up. 
so that it's not just the same thing over and over again, right? Uh, so halfway through uh, the Blood Beast Terror, we, I mean, it, it doesn't look like we're in a radically new place, but still now we have Cushing being incognito uh, with, the, with the investigation. We have some new characters who are introduced, a, a new setting. Uh, the, the the stakes are are changed, and and, and I I think that's that's great. It, it's not just we're you know starting to spin its wheels by keeping us in the same location where we began. So yeah, I think that's that's in its favor. Uh, uh, agreed. Oh, yeah, agreed. I I agree with you one hundred percent. I think uh, by doing that it avoided becoming stale and, and feeling like just a retread of a thousand other hammer and hammer like films. Uh, it, it really did try to, or maybe it just kind of fell into it accidentally, uh, <laughs> change things up about, like you said, about halfway through. Yeah. And I was enjoying myself watching it, but when they go to another part of the country and Cushing has to go incognito, I was sitting up straight. I was like, Oh, now this is getting really interesting. And there's some fun little, I think, winks to the audience in some of those stages, too, where it's kind of like, you know, all right, we know what kind of movie this is. You know what kind of movie this is. We're all in this together. And there's we can take some shortcuts if need be. Right. So mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. uh, the uh, our our, our uh, woman is uh, tracking down Cushing's daughter, she walks along the. Uh, the 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 road and invites her to get into the carriage, and we we cut from the invitation to get into the carriage to Cushing's daughter on the slab in the laboratory having her blood drained. Right, <laughs> none of the intervening. You know, how do they get her here? And let's you know put the 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 the, the you know the chloroform soaked cloth over her face and tie her down. All that. No, just click bang right to it because you don't need to know all that other stuff. You know, well, we're what's just we're gonna dive right in. We can yeah. You know, there's a shorthand to these types of movies that it takes advantage of. Yeah, exactly. So there's no wasted time or motion or movement. Yeah. And there's uh, Robert Fleming. Yeah, of course, he's also a hypnotist on, on top of being a scientist he... and everything else. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> the Lugosi glows in, uh, over his eyes, right? Oh, that was that was so great, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, I was wondering how they were going to pull that off. I, I was legitimately worried that they were going to kill Cushing's character's daughter and it was going to go in a direction that, because I, I liked her. I didn't want to see her, you know, right. get, get drained and dumped off in a bog somewhere, you know? So I was curious as to how that they were going to play that off. Oh, let's hypnotize her into coming back and just forgetting every time. <laughs> well, and then the funny thing is that when she's, you know, she, she, she is hypnotized to come back, but when she comes back, there's nobody there. Right. right? The, uh, the, the weremoth is off killing her, her boyfriend and, uh, Malinger is, is dead. So we just have her walking around hypnotized in an empty house. There's no one there to drain her blood. So there's, there's a funny thing there too, where we're, she's kind of set up <laughs> as primary victim, right? Uh -huh. And she does have a little, she has blood drained, but then she's just sent home and <laughs> is otherwise <laughs> fine. And then just comes back for her next appointment. Right. So we, and, and then when she finally is in peril, it's because she tripped and fell down and dropped the lantern. So you know, it, at no point is she ever actually threatened by the monster. Right. Yeah. All of the victims are male. That's a really good point. What do you think that was all about? Well, I mean, it's, we've, we've seen, I guess we've seen that reversal before. That's right. true, yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we have seen it, though, usually with 
if we're starting to get not exclusively female victims, then if there are more male victims, it'll tend to be a mixture, right? And here it, uh, there are, especially when there's a sexual angle involved, and there obviously is here too, right? So we, but we don't have the the, the sexual threat towards Cushing's daughter in here. It's all at, uh, aimed at the, the 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 various, often you know. Uh, Husky young men who who look like they think, just like Professor Malinger, think they're top dog, that they are the mm -hmm. ones in control when they most emphatically are not, right? So more of those reversals that keep happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, and I know, you know, I'm, I'm not sure this was the intention, but, you know, as a vegetarian, as an animal lover, as somebody who doesn't want to see things get killed brutally for, for no reason... Okay, the guy who's pinning beautiful butterflies to his collection board. <laughs> yeah, of course he's going to get it, and I'm okay with that. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think he's learned his lesson by the end of the film. <laughs> oh, I think so. <laughs> How do you like it now? Yeah, I mean, talk about your reversals there, too, right? Since it's, uh, <laughs> you got a death's head moth the other day? Well, here's another one for you. Right? <laughs> oh, man. Um, I, I was tickled a little bit by the credits because we're getting through the opening credits and was Roy Hudd got like a, a special guest or yeah. guest starring or I can't remember the exact way they said it, they stated it, but it, it felt like you, it's not a TV show. I'm not sure why we're getting this special credit listing for, of all people, Roy Hudd, who I don't know much about. Do you know much about the he guy? He was apparently a, a, a television personality. So he was kind of a a, a, a face. Okay. Uh, so the so audiences then would, would have known him more than a lot of the other ones. Okay. And, uh, so and I gather he and Cushing kind of uh, did some reworking of their exchanges in the morgue together. He's, yeah, so he's the morgue attendant yeah. for people who don't know. and. You know, of course, you've got the the morgue attendant having his meal with the dead body on the same table. It, it's kind of a trope at this point. I'm there for it. I'm there for it. I think it's, you know, fine, and I like to see it. But, of course, that's in there, and there's a little bit of a jokey kind of attitude there as well. And maybe, maybe that's what that was all about. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's definitely the comic relief. Mm -hmm. I, I think the one of the things that I think plays best, at least for me now, is the moment when he suddenly shifts out of uh you know just you know kind of boorish mode to expertly describe the wounds on one of the bodies <laughs> like the technical uh jargon just flowing mm -hmm. as if he is the medical examiner huh yeah i feel like we dove right into this and just kind of <laughs> <laughs> just kind of jumped right into this so i i don't really have an outline mm -hmm. or a plan or anything regarding this film this was a an episode that came together rather quickly. So I don't know if there's any big points that I'm missing. Are there any things in the movie that really stands out to you? If you were trying to sell this movie to somebody, if somebody didn't want to see it or just how would you pitch well, them or kind of position them to see this film? It acts as a kind of reversal of some of the tropes that were pretty established then, but particularly the way it bounces off the reptile and does interest some yeah, there, there's some familiar things with its female monster, but some that are uh, different as well. There is something audacious about the monster, right? As little as we get to see it, and as a little aside, I think one of the things that has long drawn me to this is that for since I was a kid, I was curious about seeing this film. 
because of the still that we get on page 207 of Dennis Gifford's Pictorial History of Horror Movies. <laughs> yeah? I know it's page 207 because page 206 is the one is the still from the black cat, which traumatized a lot of us when we were kids uh, with the, the woman with the hatchet in her head. Oh, but, nice. But the, on the opposite page, we get a close up of the the moth's head. Right? Okay. And uh, all you don't see the, the rest of the body, you just see the head. And I sort of thought it was like just literally just this giant uh, flying moth. So I thought it looked really cool. So I was very I wondered about this film for a long time. And but when I finally did see it, I, I wasn't disappointed. And so, yeah, I think the audaciousness of the monster, the the interesting way it plays with the tropes. And I think I'd also do some need to do some counterselling. And I'm not sure if that's quite the word I want. But the fact that, for instance, I think we need to talk about the ending. Right. That's that's kind of the <laughs> the elephant. Oh, the oh, yeah. For, oh, yeah. For how anticlimactic the the ending is. And yet there's some wit in there. Right. How do you kill a giant moth? Well, set some leaves on fire. That'll take care of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it does. Right. It's like the easiest monster kill ever right to steal a line from pitch meetings it's super easy barely an inconvenience yeah it's thing is too uh though that, that that's also you know it, it's not quite as the film was originally intended they had a a lovely detailed model of the moth monster that was going to be destroyed and they were going you know they had the camera filming uh, with the film going through quickly to you know capture this in all its glory, and so they went ahead. They set it on fire, and someone apparently accidentally kicked the plug, the 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 cord for the camera, and unplugged the oh, camera. Oh no! So really? by the time they got, by the time they got that sorted, the model was in ashes, so they couldn't use it, right? And the film was already a week uh, over schedule. The the you know the, so there's no time, there's no money. Uh, I'm often reminded uh, in this context of the, the title of Jimmy Sangster's autobiography, you know, Do You Want It Good or Tuesday? Right. <laughs> and, well, which finder general was going to be good? And this movie was going to be Tuesday. And it was already <laughs> Thursday. So they had to wrap it up. So we get the, just the, you know, <laughs> to put it kindly, impressionistic moments of, <laughs> <laughs> of, of the monster's demise. Yeah. Uh, but I, so yeah, I, I, on the one hand, I can't defend that, but I come here to praise it, not to bury it. And mm -hmm. I think it is kind of in keeping with this wit that's been running all the way through the film. Right. And in that it's, though it is very much a late period Gothic horror film. It's mm -hmm. certainly cut from the same cloth as the Hammer films. I mean, my God, that score sounds like it's... it's. Oh, I love the music. <laughs> yeah. You know I'm going to bring that up. I love the music. Because <laughs> it, it sure sounds like it's trying hard to be Hammer there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the score was by Paul Ferris, who... Uh, I think he did Witchfinder General as well. I think he was kind of one of the mm -hmm. Tygon in-house guys. Is that some good stuff? Yeah. And so so it, it is that, and yet it's also saying okay but you know we are now i mean this is this is over a decade after the curse of frankenstein everybody's got the tropes memorized the audience has these these tropes memorized so there's some we don't have to repeat we'll do this rapid edit because you know we, we don't need to tell you how we got into the slab you know she's going to the slab so here she is on the slab and 
the the ending of the film it's like the it's like a fast forward on from dracula's demise and horror of dracula mm-hmm. uh it's kind of like well it's the end of the film and and really how else did you think they were going to kill a moth monster how difficult did you think it was going to be <laughs> <laughs> and so i i i kind of have to admire the the, the unapologetic nature of that ending and I do think it's in keeping with the wit of the film. And, you know, there's just, and, but I think, he, you know, if, if, if I, if I manage to sell you into not dismissing it because of that, that as ridiculous as the monster might be on the, the face of it, some of the, the, just the very quick images we get do work better than perhaps they should. Mm-hmm. I mean, that moment when the, uh, when, when when Claire, you know, is been angered by her father and turns into the moth and swoops at him and the the, the, the wings sweep out to embrace him. That's not mm-hmm. a bad little you know, quarter of a second that we're getting there. On, yeah. You know. So I think there's there's a lot there's a lot of joys. The film is there's a lot of smarts to it. I think it's the thematically really interesting. And and uh Wanda Ventham. Apart from Peter Cushing, that obviously it's gonna be a selling point. And for Terror of Dr. Hitchcock fans, you've got Robert Fleming uh, as, as well. But Wanda Ventham is, you know, definitely the uh, one of the MVPs here. And the way that she sells the coiled power of that character, right? She's threatening enough when she's not a moth, Right, you, uh, yeah, especially when you watch it a second time and you hear some of the, the, the double meanings in some of the lines that she's delivering, as she's seducing yet another victim. I mean, she's a a presence there. I mean, I I, I said that I've seen this movie more often uh, than than Star Wars. I think this is all. I've also probably seen Wanda Ventham in this role more times than any of the films her son Benedict Cumberbatch has been in. See, I was going to say, we need to make sure that we mention repeatedly, and I'll even put this in the show notes. <laughs> this movie stars the mother of Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict Cumberbatch, Benedict Cumberbatch, Benedict Cumberbatch. Get that search engine optimization, especially since the new Doctor Strange movie is coming out. There Let's you go. get this onto Google's front page <laughs> by making sure we mention that Benedict Cumberbatch's mother is in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not why I jumped at the chance to do this on the show. It just kind of worked out the way that it did. <laughs> so you were saying that you liked the music. I did. Uh, so uh, like I said, Paul Ferris was the composer. And yeah, he was kind of the in-house guy, it looks like, for Tygon. He did uh, a number of their films, if not all of their films. Uh, he also did a few other things like She-Beast, which I don't think is Tygon, is it? Uh no, that was a, so. That was another Michael Reeves one, right? Uh, it gets a little bit confusing because of the things that Tony Tenser, the Tygon head, produced, because mm-hmm. he also produced a little movie called Repulsion, uh, right? And uh, well, I, oh, and, and my, you know, also uh, to give uh, Tygon its due, they it, it's from them that we get two out of the three of the folk horror uh, holy trinity. Right, not just Witchfinder General, but also the Blood on Satan's Claw, which I still haven't seen. Oh, oh, <laughs> I know, I know. I need to oh, correct I mean, that. As, as much as I love Blood Beast Terror, 
mm-hmm. uh, Blood on Satan's Claw. That I, that's one of those movies that I can finish watching and then immediately hit play and watch it again. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It is. Uh, there's. There's. That is something else. Um, some of the and the music in that. Oh, wait till you hear the music in that. You know, I think I have. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think I did track down the soundtrack because, um, you know, I, I buy and listen to a lot of soundtracks for movies I've never seen before just because I'm that much of a film geek, score geek. Um, so I have listened to the music from that, and it is good stuff. I just never got around to watching the movie, and I don't know why. I just never did. It's, uh, well, uh, I I'll highly, so. highly, highly <laughs> recommend it. As, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm being I'm keeping playing my cards very close to my chest here, and you may not really know how I feel about the movie, but uh... <laughs> uh, but yeah, Paul Ferris is a composer. Uh, it fits right into that. I hate to say the phrase "wannabe" when it comes to trying to sound like a Hammer film mm-hmm. because it kind of has some negative connotations. And there's nothing negative about the music. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've enjoyed all the music of his that I've heard. I like the score from the She Beast. I really like the music that he did for Witchfinder General. Uh, Creeping good. Flesh he did as well, and I really like that too. So, uh, and I guess he did the Sorcerers, which I didn't really know, but that's that really interesting Karloff film, also directed yeah. by Michael Reeves. So maybe he was a Michael Reeves guy. Maybe yeah. The I can't um, yeah. I I just started lo- looking really quickly at uh, a, fil- uh, a filmography for Tygon and She Beast isn't there. But I you know, you got to the, the way that Tony Tenser bounced around. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he wasn't if he if he hadn't financed uh, the She Beast as well just just prior to Tygon. Right, uh, and, I, and I would need to double check. You know, I as somebody who grew up in the eighties reading comic books, of course, you know, there's the Marvel versus DC, which is better, you know, uh, which is better star Trek versus Babylon five, you know, and it's, it's easy to kind of slip into that for me. Mm-hmm. And I think when I first started discovering these movies, I did have that kind of, well, hammer's good. I'm not going to watch the rest of them because they're just trying to, but at this point, they each have, have their own different yeah. flavor and what they bring to the table. And a lot of the same creators worked in, in, all two or all three different studios they did you know you'd see a lot of people going back and forth between hammer and amicus and every once in a while they dip into tygon as well mm-hmm. and but but when they did they always brought something different to the table they didn't bring the old hammer house style to say which finder general no, or, or, or or even she beast or anything like that which isn't tygon but still yeah. it, they always brought something different to the table and i think that's really interesting as well and when you think of some of the things that they've done, I mean, so obviously I'm making the case for the Blood Beast Terror, but set that aside, and you've got the Sorcerers, Witchfinder General, uh, the Creeping Flesh, uh, Blood on Satan's Claw, Doom Watch. Uh, you know, this is this is a, a little company that's punching above its weight in yeah. terms of pumping out the classics there. Witchfinder General is one of those movies that if you ever meet Victoria Price at an event or whatever, and you ask her about what her favorite Vincent Price movie is, and then you follow it up by telling her that you think Witchfinder General is the best Vincent Price movie, she will like kind of cringe. Really? <laughs> because Vincent Price is not a nice guy in that movie, and no, he's not it's... supposed to be. No. Um, I think years ago, I did an episode with Dr. Gane Green where we talked about our top three favorite Vincent Price films, and both of us put Witchfinder General right at the top. Now, it might change now for me, but I do think it's a very well-made and very effective film. Yeah. But it's not nice. There is no. nothing pleasant about what's going on in that movie. 
Uh, whereas something like this, you know, other Tygun properties, I can still kind of find something to have a little bit of fun with. Right. So. Well, and that's, I, 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 I'm very much of the same mind. And I mean, I really admire Wishfinder General. I think mm -hmm. it's, yeah, I think it's a really good film. But if, if we look at are these are the, the twinned productions of, of the films, yeah, if I want to sit down and reach for one to have fun with, it's going to be Blood Beast Terror over oh, yeah. General. I'm not going to say that Blood Beast Terror is a better movie than Witchfinder General. I know I won't say that, but I do enjoy it more. Mm -hmm. And certainly of the our Ground Zero folk horror uh, trinity, it, the 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 ones that I will watch over and over again, and never tire of, and always have fun with, are The Wicker Man and Blood on Satan's Claw. I was going to uh, say, let's make sure we mention that Wicker Man is the other film yeah. of the three that we've been talking about, which. I still plan on doing an episode on because I do really like the Wicker Man a lot. So that will get a Monster Kid radio treatment at some point down the line. I've had numerous people say they want to talk about it. It's like, yep, and we will someday because I love it. Magnificent film. Hmm. Yeah. So I guess for me, I would really, I would really hype up the monster design. I know it's a little silly and I know it's a little low budget, but there's a scene in the film We've already given the spoiler warning. We've already spoiled the heck out of what's going on here. But towards the end of the movie where we see that part of the whole grand design of the villain, of the monster, is to get this guy to create another one of yes. them. Yes. Uh, to make a mate or a partner or a play, whatever. Somebody to hang out with. It's a Bride of Frankenstein thing. Yeah. With another and, reversal this time. with Yeah, this yeah. time it's a male monster. And it's it's stuck up in this little archway in this little chrysalis. But there's one shot where they see a close-up of its face and it's moving and breathing. Yeah. And that was just wickedly creepy. And then it's immediately followed up with a scene or a little bit of dialogue where the guy's like, well, fine, I'm just going to destroy this thing. And he sets it on fire immediately. And it was, like, it was just breathing. It was just <laughs> a lot like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. So it was, it was pretty, uh, affecting at that it point was. for me i was like well, what uh yeah of course and we the, knew he sealed his fate at that point too but man and the creature design on that, that i mean that we get a good look at it and it looks great mm -hmm. uh, this huge sort of cocoon the you, you know you, you can almost feel the stickiness uh that that, that surrounds it i mean it, it it's authentically disturbing and yeah, coupled with what you just said about the fact that, okay, it's breathing, it's on fire. I mean, you totally understand why the other monster decides, okay, dad, you're, <laughs> bye. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Say a well thought out <laughs> plan, dude. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, Ooh, mm, I was about but, to say something that I don't normally say on the show. So for, for language reasons, but he, uh, found out. He certainly uh, did. You know. And, uh, when you, when you, you just made me think when you mentioned the, the connection to Bride of Frankenstein. I mean, that, that scene there is pretty close to mm -hmm. the original scene in the novel, right? Where the, oh, you know, the, yeah. the monster shows up, the bride is almost complete. I mean, not, not actually just drawing breath like we have here, but practically there. Uh, he, uh, Frankenstein is on the verge of completing it, sees the monster, and uh, this is just going to be destruction all over the world if I, if I make this. You know, very much what we get in just a couple of lines from Robert Fleming in mm -hmm. Bloodbeast Terror, and then he destroys it and 
So there's no I will be with you on your wedding night on the part of the, the boxer <laughs> in, in, in this film. Uh, ju- you know, it's just a more immediate uh, destruction. The, the consequences still, happen right you know, away. It, yeah. It's that moment. And there, I mean, is that the closest that any film had come to recreating that moment from Mary Shelley's novel of any movie to Ooh. that point? You know, I maybe unintentionally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it would have to be unintentionally, but yeah. I mean, I'm just throwing it out there, and I may be talking out of through my hat here, but um, but it just it just occurs to me that since you since you pointed that out about Bride of Frank, it's like, oh wow, that's so close to what what we get in the uh, in in the book. Yeah. Huh. You know, I'm going to go back and rewatch this movie at some point in the very near future. As soon as I can start watching Blu-ray movies again here, I'm going to dig it out and watch it on blue because I want to I want to dive back into it and I want to listen to the commentary track and and just kind of absorb more of it as opposed to just the streaming version of it when I watched uh in fact I watched it last night uh, right after I got off work. So this mm. it's super fresh. So I'm looking forward to just kind of diving into it. See if I can get my girlfriend to sit down to watch it with me. Uh, because it's just, it's really good. <laughs> God, it, it really is good. I know this movie gets a bad rap. I know that even the produ- the people that were involved are like, yeah, this is the worst thing we ever did. But it's it's not. I, I've i seen a lot of Peter Cushing films. I'm not going to tell you one's bad, Yeah. but I am going to tell you that there are ones that are worse than this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Yeah, completely. I mean, certainly some, I mean, there's a lot of things that I that I think are. I mean, I, I have to admire its utterly demented uh, final act. But you know, a movie like <laughs> Corruption is a lot, a lot more oh unpleasant than than this is. Uh, it, I that's the one I was thinking of. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I I like Cushing a lot. I question his decision to get involved with Corruption because that one, which I own on Blu-ray and I've watched and I've watched more than once. I think I even have a press kit for it. It's not a pleasant movie. No. It's it's not a pleasant movie. Even the ad campaign for that is <laughs> women will not be allowed to see this movie alone unless they bring their man with them. It's like, yeah. Hey, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not a woman's picture, I think, is the tagline. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, well, I, mean, I guess truth in advertising there, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Whereas one this, way to promote. I think one of the things that um, this typifies for me, the Blood Beast Terror is comfort feeling. Uh, it's, yeah. it's in that, that realm of certain films, like, you know, of, I guess that include for me, things like, uh, the flesh eaters or the car, uh, which it's just, I feel good when I'm watching it. It's just, it's ticking all the boxes. It's all the stuff I love in, in, in one place. And per- perhaps because it is so, uh, you know, broadly dismissed, the, uh, I get to feel like, oh, this one's mine. This is my special baby. Ooh, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mm, I know that feeling. I, it's not something that I've ever really kind of put my finger on, but that's kind of how I feel about movies like The Fantastic Argo Man or, or these these obscure films that people either dismiss or don't even know about. It's like, right. oh, yeah, that's the one I'm going to hang my hat on because that's the one that I love and that's the one I'm going to champion. Yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. So yeah. So this, this this one's my hill to die on. 
I want to know if listeners have watched this. I, I, I hope they have. I hope you listeners have had a chance to, to experience this. And, and I hope you have some positive you know, feelings towards it as well, because uh, David and I really dug it. I, I think it's something that even if you didn't like it the first time you saw it, give it another shot uh, after listening to, to us kind of gush about it for a little bit. Uh, if nothing else, watch the little play within the movie, because that was a lot of fun, too. I want to watch that whole production. I want yeah. to see how that whole thing plays. I mean, it's got all this Burke and Hare element to it. And... Yeah. Yeah, Frankenstein meets Burke and Hare. I mean, okay. Uh-huh. Well, but... How'd... I mean, the the way that the the sort of get make it needs to be fresher, 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 right? I mean, that's, <laughs> we we've seen that before, right? Uh, yeah, we, we know mean, where this is headed. Yeah, and you know, there, there's a shot where Peter Cushing is yes. outside watching through the window, and he's got a big grin on his face. Yeah, yeah. it's like I I feel like that's like this big, and I don't think it was intentional, but it's like a meta moment, right? Yeah. Because it's Peter Cushing who's played Frankenstein, who's been in a Burke and Hare film, watching that happen now. <laughs> In this amateur production. Well, and so, you know, yeah. there's so many meta moments in this, though, right? That, uh-huh. uh, you know, intentionality or not, but, you know, you know, once is an accident, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. And we have way <laughs> more than three times uh, in, in, in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we need him fresher, fresher. How did he die? Well, his collar was on too tight. Okay. <laughs> That's just a fun bit of that. Just that makes me smile. I yeah. don't know if that says something negative about me, but lines like that make me grin and giggle. And the you know the the ending of the play, I, I love that little moment too, where the uh, they, they the, the curtains are stuck, they can't even draw, right? So they just all have to you know get up and bow, right? Uh-huh. And you know, isn't the ending of that play a little bit like the ending of this film? It just kind of ends. <laughs> just like people yeah. die and uh, it ends. Our props didn't work out, so we're just going to take our little bow. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Blood Beast Terror, ladies and gentlemen. That's that's the movie that uh, just makes me giggle like a little kid. when I. <laughs> just so much fun. It really is a lot of fun. It I'm is. so glad that you were you know, so quick to recommend, or I guess you weren't quick about it. You just kind of dropped me an email or you a know, message I'm over the blue. Meaning like, to yeah. to uh, throw this by you uh, for ages, and I just finally remembered to do it when I was in front of the computer the other day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I'm glad I did. I'm glad you uh, wanted to do it for sure. So some of the other titles, the Blood Beast Terror has been released as uh, the Vampire Terror, the Vampire Beast, Blood Beast from Hell, and the Death's Head Vampire. Oh, I like the Death's Head Vampire. I like that. That's pretty good. That's a good title. The Vampire Beast Craves Blood, which is probably the sleaziest title. <laughs> uh, and then a whole bunch of you know foreign language titles that I can't translate or even say because I can't roll my R's. But uh, yeah, I do like the Death's Head Vampire a lot. A whole lot. And, you know, you got to, even the, the one they went with, the fact that they get blood, beast, and terror, right? I mean, let's, let's we're just throw in all, all of those words. <laughs> Let's see, what makes a good horror movie? What what sells these days? <laughs> well, we need blood. We need some terror, and there needs to be a beast. Okay, let's see what we can do here. Yes. We need them to know that this is a horror movie. Do you think our title is too subtle? <laughs> <sighs> oh, so good. Oh, so good. And th- these are my favorite kind of movies to talk about on Monster Kid Radio, that yeah, we can say the Witchfinder General is a great film. It's very well made, but you don't walk away from it with a with fun. 
you know, you no. walk away from it giggling the way that I am now, just thinking about <laughs> the Blood Beast Terror. So I got to thank you for that. Got to thank you for that, man. Oh, you're very welcome. And well, thank you for, uh, uh, for, for understanding the love. <laughs> oh, you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a couple things that I want to do before we wrap up. All right. Now, I've been shifting this to the end of the episode lately, partly because I just get so excited about what we're talking about, but partly because I feel like we already kind of know a lot of the guests that come onto Monster Kid Radio. So the whole playing the classic five to get to know somebody thing, that, that shtick doesn't work anymore. So we're just going to play the classic five for fun. The Classic Five is a game that we play on episodes of Monster Kid Radio, most episodes, whenever I remember anyway, where I have a literal deck of cards. I draw a card. Each card has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question on them. There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get to know our guests a little bit or just kind of kick back and have fun talking about our favorite thing, monster movies. David, you want to play around with the Classic Five with me? I want to play around with the Classic Five with you. Awesome. All right. Let me go ahead and get the cards out. And this time I'm actually going to pull the cards out. I'm not going to pull up a spreadsheet and cheat and whatever the way that I do sometimes. So here we go. Deck of cards. Hope listeners can hear that. I just gave it a shuffle. Okay, here we go. Card number one. What's your favorite John Carradine monster movie? Ah, favorite uh, Carradine. Well, hmm, I think I'm, boy, there's a bunch of possibilities that are, that are leaping to mind. Because I think if we go for a human monster, I mm -hmm. might say Bluebeard. That's certainly mm, the, that's the, good. the one of his that I have seen the most often. But if we would need, but we want to have actual monsters uh, in there. Oh, wait a minute. He shows up in The Howling, doesn't he? Oh, he does. Yeah. Well, that would probably be the best monsters. Uh, but okay. So uh, leading to that, but the thing is, the the other one that that's coming up in my mind is Revenge of the Zombies, and mm. yeah, that's a good it, one though. And I there because of his uh, meeting his nemesis in uh, I think it's Veda and Borg who's the uh, the uh, the the head zombie there, and she's got the great reverberating voice, and the you know he well she she she's one of the most commanding zombies of that era of zombie films. So yep. maybe I'll go with that. I think that's a great answer. Uh, that's a great film. So good. Now, uh, our friend, fellow writer, Steve Sullivan has written a couple of these. All right. I'm going to ask you another writer card. Number two, what classic monster movie needs a novelization? There's the, there you're, 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 you're catching me in, uh, uh, in a funny way because the, speaking as a writer the monster movie that i keep thinking i would love to do a novelization for is the ape man really because of its meta film game and it would be first person from the point of view of our well i think is, is shemp the name of his character in the film but the the writer of the movie, right? Who is, you mm -hmm. know, popping in and out of that film. And I think there's all kinds of fun things that you could, could do with that. Um, huh. but, uh, but if I just wanted to read a novelization, uh, I mean, I would love to see what someone would manage to do with novelizing. I don't know. Shh, the octopus. Uh, <laughs> 
Oh, that'd be fun. Oh, that'd be so fun. <laughs> Incidentally, uh, now that you put this in my mind, uh, have, I don't know if you've had the chance to read the novelizations of uh, Reptilicus, Gorgo, and uh, Conga. Uh, I have Reptilicus. I've read Reptilicus. It's very different. Yeah, uh, they they added a lot of extra stuff in there that did not make the cut in the film. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, well, a, oh boy, but I haven't read the others. Well, the same thing is true of Gorgo, and uh, I was just thinking of this when you were uh, I was listening to your your Conga episode, and uh, mm -hmm. you were talking about how endless the uh, the shooting of Conga is in the film. <laughs> in, yeah, in the book, the entire rampage is the last two pages. Really? Yes. Well. um... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's different. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I was mentioning Reptilicus, uh, listeners, um, it gets a little sexy uh, <laughs> in places where it didn't really need to be sexy. Uh, and uh, yeah, some of the relationships are, are quite different. Well, so it's the same thing in Gorgo where, uh, I mean, in the film version, the only female character in the entire movie is 200 feet tall. So there were some changes made to the book as well. Oh, boy. All right. Card number three. What do you prefer, black and white hammer films or color hammer films? Well, I think most of my favorites are color, mm -hmm. uh, but that's not to take away from, you know, Creeping Unknown, Crater Mass 2 and the like, but it's still color hammer. It really feels like you know, a hammer in, in full force. Mm-hmm. And certainly the, the Quatermass film I've watched the most is Quatermass of the Pit. Uh, mm. So you know, if we're looking at between the color and black and white there. I'm a big fan of a lot of the black and white Hammer films. A huge fan. I love the two Quatermass films, Brian Donlevy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I like uh, Four-Sided Triangle, uh, a lot of those films. But come on, Hammer's made for color. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> or I mean, color's made for Hammer, you know. That's That's the revolution, right? when mm -hmm. when when suddenly there's that red blood on the screen agreed all right card number four who or what is on your personal kaiju mount rushmore godzilla mm -hmm. um you know you could kind of cheat and say godzilla and Ghidorah, and then you're done right <laughs> there are no wrong answers <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I would say if, if we're, so if I'm going to limit myself, so are we li limiting ourselves to here exclusively to Japanese monsters? You know, you know, it's up to you. It's your call on how you want to do it. Yeah. I, when I say Kaiju, my brain immediately goes to Japanese, even though technically you could include, you know, Gorga and some of the others. So. Yeah. Uh, but then I guess or, that opens up the whole, all the you know, the Harry Allison films uh, too. So uh -huh. all right, I'll stick yeah. to, to uh, 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 Japan then. And so it would be uh, Godzilla, Gamera, Ghidorah, and uh, Rodan, I think. Okay. Right on. Mostly Toho. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With with uh, with you know with 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 with, with Gamera making the. It's, you can't deny Gamera. I mean, I know Toho is kind of the go-to, but it's Gamera. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. All right. Final question. Final card. What is your favorite Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde film? The 1932 film. Ooh, that was a fast answer. Oh, well, it's, uh, well, I mean, I've 
God, I've taught that one so many times. It, oh, have you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's there's so much going on there. It's so dark. It's mm -hmm. so cruel, right? I mean, it's so unflinching in the the portrayal of what Hyde, uh, what, what Frederick Marsh's Hyde does to Miriam Hopkins. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's yeah, it's about as pre-code as pre-code can get. I mean, and March's performance is you know, more than worthy of that Oscar. Oh yeah, uh, it's there's just it's such a rich film. The the you know the the makeup. Yeah, you know, when I show this to my students, they they are still slack jawed by the initial transformation, right? Oh, that, it's that, amazing that uninterrupted shot, right? It's just it still is astounding, and. It's it's just so multi-layered, so visually spectacular. Mm -hmm. uh, I've yeah, I mean, I've certainly enjoyed uh, some other uh, Jekyll and Hyde variations, but I, for me, none of them come close to that one. It's the uh, it's the Mount Everest of Jekyll and Hyde adaptations. It really is. You mentioned Shh, the octopus earlier; they do a similar effect. Yes. But it's it, it which comes way out of the blue in that one you're like yeah out of that what why is that, that, that i love it don't don't oh. question it but what oh heck uh, when i showed that film to my stepchildren they thought you know they're like yeah you know, i sort of like what what fever dream had i subjected them to <laughs> <laughs> you know there's you know it's a, a film that read a comedy that rediscovers the true meaning of of, of pure unsullied nightmare uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, images that linger in the mind long after you wish they would not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of describes that, sums that one up pretty good. Um, and that sums up this round of the Classic Five. So thanks for playing that. Uh, thanks for being here, of course, uh, and, and appearing on Monster Kid Radio and doing this so short notice the way that we did. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I know you're a busy guy. Busy doing all sorts of cool stuff when it comes to books and writing, and I want people to know about it. So, what what's out there right now? People can get their hands on if they want to read some of your work. Well, uh, my most recent books have a definite monster angle to them. Uh, one from uh, Black Library is an Age of Sigmar novel called A Dynasty of Monsters, which has all sorts of extremely grotesque uh, vampires in there. Uh, they, these ones ain't sparkly; they some of them have tentacles. Uh, or uh, sign me up. <laughs> Or you have claws like they're 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 really screwed up looking, and uh, the other is uh, my most recent Doctor Doom novel, The Reign of the Devourer, which also has vampire-like things in there, kind of uh, much more feral versions of Max Shrek. If you want to get a bit of a sense of really of, of them, yeah. Uh, oh, cool! All, all the, right, they absorb your soul through contact, so it's um the, they're they're called the Urvalak. So, um, yeah, so uh, Reign of the Devourer with Dr. Doom and the Dynasty of Monsters are my most recent books out there right now. Right on. Well, I will make sure there's links in the show notes uh, to those as well as maybe a handful of your other books. Do you have a website or anywhere people can kind of keep up with what you got going on? They can find me on Twitter at David underscore Annandale. They track me down on Facebook under my name and my website is uh, DavidAnandale.com. All right. Well, link in the show notes, of course. Uh, and if you join us in the Monster Kid Movie Club, a lot of times David will join us for the first and maybe even second movie, depending on what he's got going on that day. So if you want to interact with him there and as well as a bunch of other really cool cats watching some cool movies, that's where you do it. So it's such a fun time. Thank you for being part of the community. 
Uh, and, and thanks for being part of Monster Kid Radio this week. Oh, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Frankenstein's monster can be destroyed by fire. Dracula by a silver stake driven through his heart. But nothing, nothing will avail against the absolute evil of the creeping flesh. A scientific experiment turns into a nightmare as a creature from hell, buried since the dawn of time, is restored to life. The creeping flesh will infect the innocent with its malignant power. The creeping flesh will drive the insane to new excesses of madness and murder. The creeping flesh from Columbia Pictures, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. With the tranquility of rural England shattered by civil war, evil was spawned at a time of strife in the land. Take him, Stern. Look for the devil's marks upon him. Right. Help it, you two. Pounding the innocent in violence and terror, this evil man showed no mercy in the pursuit and interrogation of his victims. He was called the Witch Finder General. And amidst the horror of the witch hunt, a story of tender young love. Didn't your uncle just say you must early to bed? He did. And isn't he a wise man? He is. But even their innocence is cruelly corrupted by the vile touch of the witch finder general. My motive in coming here was to find the truth. Vincent Price is the witch finder general. Lust and greed were his only gods. The money from the magistrate, nine guineas in silver. Good. Now we can leave. Ian Ogilvy as Richard Marshall, he stood alone against the forces of devilish destruction. And tis in thy sight, O Lord, that I hereby swear I shall not rest from the pursuit of his murderers till they stand before thee, ready to answer to thee for their sins. Rupert Davies as John Lowe's. Master Marshall, welcome. Patrick Weimark as Oliver Cromwell. Amongst the most pleasurable aspects of victory, gentlemen, is the opportunity it affords to reward valour. It ranks almost with good food. And Wilfred Bramble. And uh, what line of business might you be in? God's business. Witch finding. Witch finding. Oh, that's nice. That's very nice. And introducing Hilary Dwyer as Sarah. Filmed in authentic detail and photographed with piercing realism against the actual background of peaceful villages and quiet countryside. Never has England looked so beautiful, yet been so violent. I'm your man friend. John Stern, they call me. Man's inhumanity to man portrayed on the screen so vividly that you flinch. So real that you too will fear the witch finder general. Be the first to see it. Be the first to talk about it. The witch finder general. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, thank you for being here. I appreciate you being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience, family, audience, trip. I don't know what you want to call it. Bottom line is Monster Kid Radio isn't here if not for you. Monster Kid Radio would not have received an honorable mention in this year's Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards if not for you. So thank you for your support that way. 
thank you for downloading the show and sharing posts about it and tweeting about it and getting involved online and just kind of spreading the word about what we do here at Monster Kid Radio. You can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio on the website at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to everything that we've talked about here on the show, as well as our contact information. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Discord, our Patreon, and our Twitch. It's all there. Also, if you look at MonsterKidRadio.net, maybe not for the show notes for this episode, but right before it, just kind of dig into the archives, scroll down a little bit, you'll see there's an ad for a Hawaiian shirt featuring what I referred to as the Monster Collage artwork. It's a piece of art that I've used for various Monster Kid Radio things over the years. Uh, when I had custom envelopes made, I used this particular design. I use it for background art for a number of things, either on the stream or on the website, or sometimes just for other pieces of artwork on Facebook or Twitch, just whatever. You can now get this artwork on a Hawaiian shirt. $35, and that includes shipping. Make sure you check it out in the website at monsterkidradio.net or go straight to tinyurl.com slash mkrh shirt. This shirt will only be available through May 14th, and then I'm pulling the plug on it. So if you want to get your hands on it, you got to do it now. The shirt is available from small to 5X. It's a polyester blend. I have a shirt. I really like it. I've worn it around town numerous places. In fact, the last time I wore it to a movie theater to catch a kung fu flick with Jeff Pollier and Tom Dr. Doffelstein Doffel, I received comments about it from somebody sitting behind me. So, you know, it's an attention grabber. It's a Hawaiian shirt. It's got monster art. Check it out. You can also check out our Tee Public shop. We've got links to that in the show notes as well. What's coming up next week on the show? I know what's coming up. In fact, as of right now, I've already recorded it. I know that next week begins May, which is when we traditionally do Lucha de Mayo. I did it. Ah, Lucha de Mayo. Lucha de Mayo. You know, it's because I said the word May so close to it. Anyway, May is when we typically do Lucha de Mayo, which is when we do nothing but luchador, monster, and luchador pulp or adventure movies. However, I wanted to break protocol a little bit because there's a novel coming up called It's Alive that I'm really excited about. Now, I've read it because I was given an advanced copy. The author, Julian David Stone, and I had a conversation earlier this morning as of this recording, and that's what you're going to hear next week. We had an interview. We talked about his previous work, his current book, how he got into it. Is he a monster kid? Does he really know his stuff? We even play around with the Classic Five. It's a good time. I had a lot of fun recording with them, and I hope... You'll have a lot of fun hearing that conversation in next week's episode of the podcast. So please come back for that. Until then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Salty Sister. That is copyright The Surfer Jets 
You can find that on their album, Roller Fink, which you can pick up a number of different places, including Bandcamp, over at thesurfrejets.bandcamp.com, or look them up over at High Tide Recordings. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Mm-hmm.